Sitting there every day, I've enjoyed it. I've been in the limelight. I like being the center of attraction. I think I earned it, too. Nobody else had the guts to pull off what I pulled off and got away with it. If I won the case, I could sit there and laugh for a fucking hour. You stupid son of a bitch. Gacy outsmarted him again. Hi, I'm Michelle O'Dell. Welcome to Corn-Fed Killer. Today I have for you the story of the infamous John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. The introductory quote you just heard was of Gacy talking about how he felt being in the courtroom every day during his six-week trial. A trial in which he was facing the death penalty, having been been charged with 33 counts of first-degree murder. At that time, no other person had ever been charged with so many counts of murder in the United States. Gacy couldn't give a shit. I mean, you can tell from that quote. He even thought that he could get away with it. He thought he could possibly get away with killing 33 people. He thought he could, quote-unquote, win the case. He was an arrogant, full of himself, and had obviously no regard for the victims or for their families. To tell this story, I think we must start at the beginning. John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. His father, John Stanley Gacy, reportedly named John Wayne Gacy after the actor John Wayne, who you probably know was a star of many Western films. John Wayne's character was the embodiment of the tough cowboy persona. John Stanley Gacy was a strict disciplinarian and wanted his son to be a tough, quote-unquote, man, a man, to be tough and to be, quote-unquote, a man. John Wayne Gacy, on the contrary, was a chubby, non-athletic child and as such was a disappointment to his father. His father abused him verbally and physically, calling him a sissy and beating him regularly. John Wayne Gacy was diagnosed with a nonspecific heart condition as a child. This condition prevented him from participating in sports and limited his physical activity. This only fueled his father's disdain for his son. John Stanley Gacy was an alcoholic and spent a lot of his time at home in the basement, drinking heavily and working on various projects. Much of the abuse that John Wayne suffered at the hands of his father took place in the basement. Through it all, John Wayne Gacy said that he still loved his father and, quote, loved what he stood for. John Wayne Gacy would later say that at the age of five, he was molested by a 15-year-old mentally disabled girl. Gacy said that the girl's mother caught her daughter touching Gacy and hit her several times. Furthermore, Gacy reported that at the age of about seven or eight, he was molested repeatedly by a local contractor who was working on a new home in Gacy's neighborhood. Gacy said that the man would molest him and then reward him by giving him ice cream. Gacy reportedly told his mother about the, re- about the abuse, who she then told the father. And in response, his father told the man that he would kill him if he ever touched his son again. This last part may or may not be true. 
Other reports maintain that John Wayne Gacy was too scared to tell his father, afraid that he would be blamed and that he would be punished for what the man had done to him. Thinking about this, I think it's important to note um, the molestation as part of, you know, what may have formed his psyche as a child. Um, But there really is no way that we can find out if it really happened at all or if it did happen, if which part is true, if the father knew or the father did not know, if he told or if he didn't tell. Um, I, I really can't even weigh in on which account I believe they both could very possibly have happened. Um, but I will say that this have, would have been in the late 1940s or early 1950s. And at the time, the child, John Wayne Gacy, would likely have never heard the term molestation and certainly wouldn't have known what it meant. So I'm not convinced that he would have had the language to tell what was happening to him. On the other hand, it's certainly believable that he could have told his mother what the man did, confused about what it was and how it made him feel, and that his mother in turn told his father. Either way, it is horrific for John Wayne Gacy the child, and it is something that left an impression on him. There's no doubt about that. When John Wayne Gacy was 11 years old, he was hit in the head with a swing. So the swing, you know, when you jump off the swings and they're still swinging around or whatever, an accident, and he was hit in the head. This injury apparently caused Gacy to suffer blackouts, and he spent many many months in the hospital. This went on for five years, until until age 16, when it was finally determined that Gacy had a blood clot in his brain. And they link it back to when he was hit in the head at age 11. The clot is treated. And Gacy, though, had missed so much school that he found it impossible to catch up. And he quit. He quit school. Um, Gacy's father used this as proof that Gacy was worthless and stupid and would never amount to anything. Despite his father's abuse, Gacy continued to live at home until about age 20, when he finally decided that he'd had enough of his father's alcoholism and abuse. He packed his stuff and fled for fled Chicago for Las Vegas, Nevada. In Las Vegas, Gacy got a job as a janitor in a mortuary. He would often work overnights alone in the mortuary. It was reported that he even would stay in the mortuary, sleeping on a cot near the embalming room. He later admitted that he had performed sex acts on at least one male corpse. His realization that a male corpse had sexually aroused him was disturbing. And at that point, he decided that he wanted to return home to Chicago. So after only spending about 90 days in Vegas, he headed back to Chicago, moved back in with his parents. He attended Northwestern Business School. He graduated in 1963, and he started working as a management trainee at the Nunn-Bush Shoe Company. He was promoted to manager and was transferred to Springfield, Illinois. He finally left his parents' home for good. While working in Springfield, Gacy met a woman named Marlon Myers, and they began dating. Nine months later, in September of 1964, the two were married. Gacy became actively involved in the Springfield community, joining the JCs, 
Now, the JCs is a group of young men, typically between the ages of 18 and 35, who organized various charitable drives for the community, as well as providing resources and services to the citizens of Springfield. Now, the JCs is still a thing, I'm, I think, and I'm pretty sure that um, we still have JCs here in the Midwest. I don't know about nationally, but here in the Midwest, I know we still do have chapters of the JCs. Okay. Well, Gacy had found his niche, so to speak. He was a very good at bluster, basically building his reputation as a nice guy, a successful businessman, and a good husband. He quickly rose up the ranks of the JCs and was made vice president in 1965. Marlon and John Wayne Gacy decided to move to Waterloo, Iowa, where Marlon's father owned several Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants. Marlon and John Wayne Gacy moved into Marlon's parents' home, and Gacy's father-in-law made him manager of his three KFCs. Hi, I'm back. I had to pause there. I don't know if you noticed, but my dog was going nuts, and I had to figure out what he was barking at. So we are in Iowa now, where Marlon's father owns several KFCs, and he has made John Wayne Gacy the manager of three KFCs. While in Iowa, Gacy continues his involvement with the JCs, and he quickly became well-known in the area. Now, unlike the JCs in Illinois, the Waterloo, Iowa JCs reportedly had a dark underground in which members participated in pornography, prostitution, and drug use. Gacy fully participated in these illicit activities. His deviant behavior did not stop there. Gacy would often invite teenage boys and young men to hang out in the basement, promising them weed and alcohol, that they could watch porn, etc. He would often get the boys and the young men drunk and high and then sexually assault them. While this is all going on right under their nose, Gacy's wife right under her nose, rather, Gacy's wife gives birth to two children, Michael in 1967 and Christine in 1968. Gacy is really starting to feel himself during this time, recalling later that this was the only time in his life that he received the approval of his father. Gacy became extremely self-confident to the point of delusion. He told outright lies to make himself look better to others and was known as a braggart, a blowhard. Still, most people in the community liked him, and he developed the attitude that he was smarter than most everyone and could do anything he wanted. And he did. In 1967, Gacy hired 15-year-old Donald Voorhees to do some odd jobs around his home. Donald's father, like Gacy, was a member of the JCs. One day, after Voorhees had finished his work at the Gacy's house, Gacy lured him to the basement with the promise of free beer and porn. After getting the teen intoxicated, Gary, pardon me, Gacy <laughs> forced him into oral sex. Gacy continued this behavior over the next year, luring teenage boys to his home many of whom worked for him at the KFC restaurants, and performing sex acts on them and forcing them to perform sex acts on him. One young man named Stephen Nemers recalled that he met Gacy through a friend of his who worked at one of the KFCs that Gacy managed. 
One day, Gacy invited Stephen and his friends over to hang out, drink beer, play pool, and smoke some weed. Stephen was a very good pool player, and he recounted how he and Gacy had played many games, and that Steve had beaten Gacy every time. Gacy suggested, after a while, that they play for money. So they did. They bet a dollar a game. After a while, Gacy wasn't satisfied with that, and he suggested to Stephen that they should make a bet and that if Gacy lost, he had to perform oral sex on Stephen, and if Stephen lost, he had to perform oral sex on Gacy. Now, at this time, Stephen's friends had left, and he was there alone with Gacy. Stephen was freaked out by this, and he said no. Gacy laughs it off, pretending he was joking, and decides that they should watch a, quote, stag film, which in today's vernacular we call a porno. Gacy sets up the projector and plays the stag film. Then, Gacy abruptly leaves the room. By this time, Steve is thoroughly freaked the fuck out, and he's also pretty drunk. So he's not sure, and remember, he does not have a car with him, so he can't leave, and even if he did, he's pretty drunk at this point. Gacy returns holding a gun. He points the gun at Steve's head. He orders Steve to pull his pants down. Steve refuses, and he begins crying. Gacy laughs and takes the gun away. He tells Steve that he was just kidding around, that it was a test. Gacy explains that he liked to do psychological tests on people and analyze their reactions. Shortly after this, Gacy says that they should call it a night. Stephen says that in the middle of the night, he felt a hand on his inner thigh, and then a knife at his throat. Steve describes that the knife was pushing at the center of his throat. If you look at your neck, it's kind of in the middle where there's like a little dip. That's where Gacy was poking him with the knife. Steve again began sobbing and did not give in to Gacy's sexual advances. Steve says at this point that Gacy became annoyed and told Steve that he was frustrated that he couldn't, quote, break him. He took the knife away from his throat and left the room. Stephen recalls staying awake, sitting up until morning, afraid that Gacy would come back in the room. And then Gacy drove him home. Gacy told him that he would have Steve killed if he told anyone about what happened. Steve didn't tell anyone. Shortly after this incident, John Wayne Gacy was made chaplain of the JCs. The chaplain would lead the JCs in prayer at meals and at community gatherings and so forth. Kind of ironic, isn't it? He then decides he wants to run for president of the Iowa JCs. At this time, Donald Voorhees tells his father about Gacy's sexually assaulting him. His father goes straight to the police. Also, another victim of Gacy's, a 16-year-old former employee of his, reports him to the police. John Wayne Gacy is arrested for oral sodomy of Donald, Donald Voorhees and attempted assault on the other boy. He, of course, denies the charges. He even says that Donald Voorhees' father made the story up in order to prevent Gacy from being appointed president of the Iowa JCs. Gacy even pays an older teenage boy to beat up Donald Voorhees. He pays him $300 to scare him into not testifying in court. 
Or he goes straight to the police, and that boy is arrested. And he tells police, confesses everything. He says, yeah, Gacy paid me, and I was to beat him up in order to get him to not testify. Gacy is charged with conspiracy assault. At the court's urging, Gacy undergoes extensive psychological testing. He is diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and is deemed a true psychopath. Still, Gacy is sentenced to 10 years in prison, and Marlon finds out about the incident and immediately files for divorce and leaves with the two kids. Gacy never sees her or the children again. He is 26 years old at this point. Gacy is sent to Anamosa Prison, also known as the Iowa State Men's Reformatory. Gacy's father dies shortly after Gacy's prison stint begins, and it was reported that it affected him quite deeply. While there, Gacy, having a background in food service, is put to work in the kitchen. He thrives there, and he becomes first cook. And he became quite popular among the inmates, and inmates would recall how he really loved the power that came with being first cook in the in the kitchen. And he relished in all the attention, his popularity. And he also remained active in the JCs while in prison, recruiting fellow prisoners to join what was called the Reformatory JCs. And it actually becomes the largest JCs in Iowa because of Gacy's recruitment efforts. Because of his quote good behavior in prison, Gacy is paroled after spending only 18 months of a 10-year sentence. To that I say, what the actual fuck? <laughs> I mean, seriously. 18 months out of 10 years? I, I don't even know how the state of Iowa can justify that. So after he gets out, he leaves Iowa and returns to Chicago, Illinois, Remember, his wife is gone, his kids are gone, and now his reputation in Iowa is ruined, so of course he wants to leave. He even gets permission from the parole board in Iowa to move back to Chicago. He moves in with his mother, and he gets a job as a cook. A little later, he gets a job working for a construction contractor. In 1970, Gacy buys a home in the Norwood Park suburb, close to Des Plaines, Illinois, which is about 30 minutes from Chicago. This home is at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue, and it will become the setting of unthinkable crimes and grisly murders. I do apologize for not doing a trigger warning at the beginning of the episode, um, but as we get farther into it, it is going to get rough. We're dealing with assault, sexual assault, murder. So if you're not into that, you don't want to hear that, you may want to log off at this point. Um, also, I will say I'm not going to go like really into what exactly he did because I just don't feel the need for that. I just want to tell what happened. Okay, so now we are in... 1972, and this is when Gacy kills his first victim. This boy is 16-year-old Timothy McCoy. Gacy approached Timothy at a bus station in Chicago. 
McCoy tells Gacy that he's going to sleep in the terminal because the bus doesn't arrive until the next day that he, you know, that he wants to take out of Chicago. Gacy offers to let him stay at his house and to drive him to the bus station the following day. McCoy agrees. Now, also, I want to note here that it comes out later that the bus depot was a place where Gacy would often troll for potential victims, people looking, young boys looking for rides, that sort of thing. So this now, according to Gacy, this is how this went down. All right. Gacy says that McCoy comes into his bedroom the following morning. So he had brought him to the house. The kids stayed the night there. And Gacy says, the next morning he comes into my room and he's holding a knife. And I thought he was going to kill me. So I grabbed the knife and I stabbed the boy to death and threw him in a crawl space. Okay. Now, I, knowing what I know about Gacy, and I venture to say that you probably agree that's not exactly how it went down. Nonetheless, that's what happened. The boy was stabbed to death and Gacy tossed him like a piece of trash into the crawl space of his house. As it turned out, Gacy said the boy was cooking breakfast and that's why he had the knife and he had gone into Gacy's room to wake him up. We'll never know if that's truly what happened, but what is clear is that Gacy enjoyed killing. He says later that he experienced intense sexual pleasure from the killing, more so than even from the sexual acts themselves. It was the killing that brought him the most intense sexual pleasure that he says he had ever felt before. Gross. (laughs) So John Wayne Gacy starts his own construction business called PDM and it becomes quite successful. Gacy once again becomes well known in the city of Chicago working with the JCs and is actually made the democratic precinct captain of Cook County, Illinois. He makes a lot of friends and he starts throwing big barbecues at his house. And he was really into throwing themed parties where he and his guests would dress up according to whatever the theme of the party was. Um, Some of the people that he knew back then recalls he did like a luau theme and he did character themes, but he just loved to be around people who he thought loved him. People who he could charm, basically. This is also when he became involved with the clowning world, so to speak, and he created the clown personas Pogo and Patches. Pogo the Clown is probably the most famous one, and it's the one that you'll also you'll often see in photos of Gacy. Um, He's got kind of a pointed diamond eyes, uh, which at the time was, and still is, as far as I know, about clowns. It's not typically what you would do when designing a clown face, particularly for kids, you want it to be more rounded because the pointy makes it look kind of (laughs) evil. And, you know, this dude definitely was. Um, So anyway, he would dress as a clown and perform at kids parties, community events, JC events, hospitals, and so on. A former friend of Gacy's recalls that Gacy once told him that clowns can do anything. Clowns can get away with murder. 
and he kind of did for a while, didn't he? All right. Gacy, also in 1972, meets and marries his second wife, Carol Huff. Now, this happens pretty quickly. They meet, and within four months, I believe it is, they get married, and she moves into his house. She already had two daughters from a previous marriage, and they move into the house as well. Carol says that she was aware of Gacy having spent some time in prison, but didn't really know all the details, and he had convinced her that he had changed his ways, and she believed him. He even told her that he was bisexual, but not gay. Whether that makes a difference or not to Carol, I don't know. Um, but Carol would soon learn that he, in fact, wasn't a changed man and that she had married a sadistic killer. On December 12th of 1978, Kim Byers is working at Nissan Pharmacy in De Plain, Illinois. De Plains, Illinois. It's a cold day and she's freezing working up at the front of the store as a cashier and you know when you're at the front of the store the doors are continuously opening and closing and it's letting in blasts of frigid winter air so she asks her co-worker and friend friend rob peast if she can wear his coat a blue puffy warm winter coat and rob being a nice guy gives kim the coat a little while later kim byers noticed a chubby middle-aged guy kind of hanging around the store looking around, not really shopping, not appearing to be picking up pictures from the pharmacy or medicine or anything like that. So she asks one of her co-workers about him, if they know who he is. The co-worker tells her that the man is a local contractor who is there to take measurements and whatnot for an upcoming remodel job at the store. Thinking no more of the man, Kim returns to her work. A little while later in the evening, Rob Peace gets his coat back from Kim. He tells her that he's going to go outside and talk to the contra contractor about a possible job. Kim doesn't see Rob again and assumes that after he finished talking to the contractor that he went home. But Rob's mother calls the store, telling Kim that Rob never came home. And she was expecting him because it was her birthday and they had planned to celebrate together. Kim tells his mother that Rob had been outside talking to a contractor about a job, and was probably just running a little bit late. When Rob still doesn't return home, his mother comes to the Nissan Pharmacy and asks again if Rob is there or if anyone knows where he went or when they last saw him. And again, she's told that he was outside talking to a contractor. And the mom tells Kim that there's no sign of Rob or the contractor outside. And his mother knows, just knows in her gut, that her son would never ditch her on her birthday. So she calls the police to report her son missing. The police visit Nissan Pharmacy and talk to everyone who was working on the night of Rob's disappearance. Kim Byers tells police about the contractor and that she believed that Rob had talked to him that night. So the police get a list of everyone who was at the store that night. They check out everyone on the list and discover that one John Wayne Gacy, a contractor, had a record. They find out that he had done time in Iowa for sodomy. So that Iowa conviction does come back to haunt him right in this case. All right. So Lieutenant Kozenzak 
head of the Desplaines PD, calls Gacy and he says, hey, I need you to come to the station for a talk. And Gacy tells Kozenzak that he had a recent death in the family and he didn't have time to come into the station right now. This does not satisfy the lieutenant and he and another officer go to Gacy's house and they notice that his work truck is leaving the residence. So they follow it. They figure Gacy's the one driving the van. After following for a little while, they eventually realize that Gacy's not driving the van. It's actually an employee of his who was behind the wheel. So the police go back to Gacy's home, but when they arrive, he is gone. At three o'clock in the morning, so that night, you know, leading into the next morning, Gacy shows up at the police station asking for Lieutenant Kozenzak. He says, hey, uh, Lieutenant Kozenzak said I had to come in and talk to him. So he does this at 3 a.m. And, of course, he's told by the officer there that he's not, the lieutenant is not here. He's gone home for the day hours ago. So Gacy's like, well, I'll come back in the morning. <laughs> so the officer does note, however, that Gacy is covered in mud. His shoes, his boots, his car, there's even mud inside the car. So that's a bit telling, right? Where did that mud come from? So I want you to keep that in mind, and we are going to end it here for part one. Now, part two, I must warn you again, uh, will be rough. It'll, it will be a little bit rough, and um, we will get into the discovery of the murders and into the trial and the eventual end to John Wayne Gacy. I am going to be on hiatus for a little while, for about a week and a half or so, but I do promise that I will get part two to you before I leave, hopefully tomorrow, if not Thursday, so you won't have to wait too long. I appreciate you listening, and I hope that you have a great week and that you visit our Instagram at cornfedkillerpodcast.com. Nope. (laughs) <laughs> not dot com instagram at cornfed killer podcast you can also email me at cornfed killer podcast at gmail.com you can follow on twitter at cf killer i hope to see you in all those places have a good one